I think that maybe COVID is more of an impetus to strengthen these authoritarian, informal, and formal institutions, but only because the nexus between far-right politics and populism is probably at its weakest point in a long time. These are people who don't even accept science half the time, and this is not excusable to a general public who's afraid that their parents and grandparents will senselessly die. I sat down with Nicholas James, a doctoral student in politics at the University of Oxford, to talk about the radical right, authoritarianism, populism in Europe and beyond during and after the more intense lockdown measures for COVID-19. This episode was recorded before the outbreak of the protests in Belarus. Nicholas has actively taken part in an international academic campaign in support of Belarusian academics. You might find out more about this in the description of this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Diplomatic Academy, The Conversation. I'm your host, Petros Petrikos, Research Associate at the Academy. Today's episode focuses on the radical right and authoritarian action in Europe during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is quite an interesting discussion as we see different movements formed before, during, and after the more intense lockdown restrictions in some countries. And uh, today we're hosting a friend and fellow researcher in the field, Nicholas James. Nicholas is a doctoral student in politics at the University of Oxford. He researches comparative politics, authoritarianism, and nationalism in Russia and Central and Eastern Europe. His dissertation and previous work focuses on how the ways in which people think about their nationality influences their political decision-making, including radicalization and extremism. He uses computational methods on discourses on the internet and parliament. Hi, Nick, and welcome, and uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Hi there, thank you for having me. Great. Uh, so uh, now let's dig in into our topic and uh, let's begin with some general questions, some general remarks. First of all, what do we mean uh, in your view by these concepts that we have here, the radical right and authoritarianism? Is the term radical right the same as mere populism as we see the word itself being used widely in mainstream media? Yeah, so we, we might spend the entire podcast discussing terms here because they're very much contested and debated over and also extremely difficult to pin down. Now, I think that might be why the media sometimes misappropriately uses uh, the terms. So hopefully I don't step on too many toes here, but I'll give my working definitions and explain why they're different and how they complement each other. And if you want to read more about where I get these definitions, I highly recommend all of Kasmuda's work. It's the pretty much orthodoxy in the field. So to start, I understand populism as a thin ideology which can attach itself to a higher order ideology like nationalism. In this ideational approach, populism contrasts the pure, good, noble, quote-unquote, people against a morally corrupt elite. Populism must follow that general pattern. And you can see how easy it is to attach itself to other ideologies from far-right nationalism to communism in some cases, which brings us to the radical right, another contested term with no real agreement. As an ideology, though, the radical right in the context of populism can be looked at with a maximum and minimum definition. At minimum, its ideology surrounds the concept of the nation, 
and it engages with a brand of xenophobic nationalism or what Muda would call nativism directed at any combination of races, cultures, ideas, and persons. At maximum, though, it's an authoritarian ideology, which is either latently believed or, or actively practiced. And this is more of an attitudinal propensity to agree with things like uh, maybe Donald Trump's law and order or, or a, a deference to authority. But maybe to bring us to the current moment, we are stuck in this middle ground where these terms don't quite encapsulate the problems that we are analyzing, and we're, le we're really left for a lack of better terminology. So to, to bring it back to, to how useful are these terms and how appropriately are, are the media using them, I think that Pippa Norris came on Twitter a few days ago to tell us, the masses, <laughs> not to use the word radical right, especially in the context of populism, since many of the parties being studied are not fully to the right and are not fully populist. But I, th I still think it is analytically useful when there are populistic appeals being made, just with the caveat that appeals do not equal politics and that we are mostly engaging with the maximum definition given by Muda right now. So many of these movements, parties, and personal politics that have been developing in this nice post-2016 era might be better understood with an updated language that describes nationalist authoritarian politics that use pop populistic appeals but are not particularly binded by them. Mm -hmm. and they're not binded to that thin ideology. So it remains second order. And maybe populism is more of a style now than a thin ideology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we definitely see populist elements as well within the left wing radical elements. So uh, I would agree. And it's actually very interesting and that we see so many different contested concepts in both research and academia. But it's always useful to set the tone, start defining them to some extent in order to set our own approach from a given scope, because we have to understand that in our field, we have to set some ground and we have to enable ourselves to understand the way we interpret things uh, always uh, at least in my research, I've seen that it frames situations. So depending on the uh, the approach that we use, uh, we get to control through a given scope, we get to control the situation, we get to frame things. Uh, it's more of a constructivist uh, understanding of uh, politics and to some extent international relations, if you like. But based on this definition, based on what you have provided now, I'd like to ask you what sort of surges do we observe in Europe? And uh, particularly, I would like to uh, stick to Central and Eastern Europe, which is your field. How, what does this tell us about political stability and security? And just to bring in some cases, we've seen recently some uh, harsher authoritarian uh, measures taking place in Hungary. We've seen some upheaval uh, very recently, actually, in Bulgaria. We, we were people they have taken it out into the streets and that's not necessarily obviously radical right but i think this is a general sort of um trend right now where the citizens the citizens themselves are reacting towards one way or another so what sort of surges do we observe now in europe yeah so central eastern and southeastern europe are, are 
having quite the field day right now in terms of democratic backsliding governments and general misrule, but also in terms of protests against this. So uh, maybe to sketch a picture for the listeners, I will just lay down some of the the news of the past month that's in my head, and we can start with Serbia. So for those who don't know, mass protests erupted in Belgrade this month after a strict curfew was introduced. And I think that the West took these at face value as anti-lockdown protests, unfortunately, but that's not quite the truth of the matter. The issue is President Vucic lifted the lockdown in May right ahead of the June 21st elections in order to give himself political gains as the man who solved COVID and and let you roam the streets again. However, doing this, he of course allowed people to die. The country went from an extreme amount of lockdown measures, some of the most extreme in Europe, to essentially normal life, including football matches with spectators, parties, uh, and etc., Of course, his party won by a landslide in the face of an essentially rigged election with no opposition votes and less than 50% of turnout. And two weeks later, uh, the lockdown measures were reintroduced again and protests emerged not against the lockdown measures and government intervention into private life, but against Vucic and his political machinations themselves. So while this could be a a promising start for uh, civic life and and real opposition opposition against him, it's also a rather telling story about what happens when you get authoritarian nationalists into power. They will do anything, even allow the death of their citizenry to retain that grip. And, uh, you you know, in terms of security, It's probably a while that we will see any transfer of power in Serbia, but the big Serbian security story that should be on our radar here is the sale of weapons to Armenia, which broke out today. That story broke today. Um, Of course, Armenia and Azerbaijan are back at it with renewed hostilities, and it's just an interesting fact that uh, Vucic was selling them weapons uh, for the past two months. Now, another interesting movement and surge as of late happened in Poland. Duda, the the president, won the elections again. President Duda, of course, is to the far right and is responsible. Well, no, he's to a a decent degree, right? But, But sometimes far right. And he's mainly responsible for dismantling many of Poland's checks and balances. The reason why this one is is interesting for those who study speech-making and populism like me is because the campaign platform pivoted to anti-LGBTQ issues. And this really underscores why the ideology of the radical right is able to be so fluid and and enigmatic. The nativism in play here doesn't direct itself against a minority or or, or migration concerns as it did in the post-2015 era, but on to LGBTQ issues. Effectively, the campaign demonizes minority of Poles and labeled them against the collective identity and nation of Poland. That being said, we do have to understand how Poland got to this new brand of authoritarian nationalist populism, for lack of a better word. And a large part of that story is in the party politics themselves. So there's a, a party called Confederacja. I don't speak Polish, but Confederacja. Mm-hmm. 
Confederacia. This is a party to the far right, further right than their mainstream brothers in PIS, who worked really to normalize much of the harder line rhetoric than PIS were giving out. And of course, uh, Confederacia was much more anti-establishment and populistic to a greater degree than PIS. I guess it's hard to be a populist when you're in power. Um, but the rhetoric, the, the harder rhetoric there, did do much to stiffen PIS and guide them down that rabbit hole. And a similar process actually occurred in Hungary since 2012 with the development of Jobbik and their dragging of Fidesz to the far-right authoritarian nationalism that you see today. And I also think that we see many similarities between Duda and Orban. And we can talk about security here real quickly if you want. It's not my specialism, but having these sorts of um, people in executive positions is often destabilizing in international affairs. And sometimes we see that rear its head even in, in more robust institutions like NATO, where Hungary ha has been vetoing a, a few different um, uh, statements by NATO in the past two years or so. But anyways, to reiterate my statements on Serbia, I think that we're entering potentially a new youthful area of protest and change. I think that people are fed up with many of these politics that have emerged in the last decade or so, and they want to reinvigorate civic life. The prime example here, by the way, is Belarus and Russia. Belarus, of course, is a truly authoritarian state, and civic life there is really limited and has been for the last uh, 25 years. However, this summer has changed many things in the country. The largest protests and rallies since the 1990s emerged after Lukashenko rejected the applications for two opposition candidates to run against him. This is on top of the fact that he bungled the coronavirus uh, outbreak. I mean, do, do you remember when everybody was watching Belarusian football? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He bungled the coronavirus outbreak. He can barely handle Russian integration pressure, and he makes promises he can't hold. Um, so maybe there is a bit of a, a democratic upswing in the air or, or waiting uh, to just be grabbed and pushed forward. And, of course, this has strong implications for security in the um, region, especially considering Ukraine and the hottest war in Europe since uh, World War II. And also on the Russian side, there have been mass protests that erupted in Khabarovsk, where people have been calling for Putin, the man himself, to resign over the widely popular um, local governor. Putin arrested this local governor, and he's due in court uh, uh, very soon. Hmm. And the, these large protests are, are extremely rare outside of Moscow and Petersburg. Uh, especially Moscow. So I think the Moscow Times put it best when they said that these people tasted democracy and now they feel ripped away. Mm -hmm. Would you say that these voices are actually beginning to shape things? Would you, would you say that they're as strong as one might expect as a, as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic? Or do you think that in general they're easily suppressed? When we're talking about specifically in Russia... Yeah, so if we're talking about Russia, we have to realize that it's it's not a democracy um, in the way that we understand democracy. And there is, to a degree, uh, 
the regime listens to public opinion to a certain degree. But I don't think that um, public voices make much of an effect on the regime. Uh, so the example from Khabarovsk, Putin assigned a new governor and he refused to meet with the protesters and they denounced him immediately. Uh, they, they see it as a, an insult to them, right? And the regime's never going to listen to them. And and for the past 10 years, you know, we, we've had uh, Navalny, we, we had the Nats them, but um, it, the regime doesn't take these kind of opposition voices very seriously at all. They have their own interests that they're following. Um, so, yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously all these elements of political stability and instability, the security implications that you have rightly referred to, they are all, you know, within protests uh, as, a, as an outcome, they do affect one way or another the economy in this different, uh, in this country. So I'd like to take at this point the opportunity to see whether we can uh, draw a comparative analysis on the situation in Western Europe. I understand, obviously, that you're much more focused on Central and Eastern Europe, but how different would you say that the situation is in Western Europe? Yeah, so in terms of COVID, um, Western Europe was able to handle it rather well, all things considered. Maybe take England out of that mix. But um, yeah, it, it's very difficult because the, the economies of Eastern Europe are much harder hit and they're going to be staying harder hit for longer because they're, some of them aren't post-industrial yet. Uh, well, let's go to Central Asia for, for, for that and Russia. But some of them were, were not ready for the pressures of COVID and a lot of people have been going without uh, the, the basics really. Whereas in Western Europe, that's less of the case, even though we're, we're kind of heading towards this brick wall of the, the job market. Um, but, you know, may, maybe I can talk about protests a little bit, a little bit. You know, I'm not an expert on Western Europe, but, but I can say that living in England has been interesting, especially as we considered how, how the U, U.S. protest movement has influenced the national conversation here over statues. Uh, I think that was one of the more interesting developments to emerge from mm -hmm. COVID. Yeah, amongst a global pandemic, we suddenly have these important conversations. I'm not sure if it's because we were sitting at home really stewing on them or, or just popular discontent over uh, the quasi-authoritarianism of Donald Trump and his lack of attention to our basic necessities. But it's bled over across the world. And in Oxford, I saw the rallies over Cecil Rhodes firsthand. I, I think that we're really, we might be coming to a head with this quote-unquote global culture war over social values. I, I, you know, I don't have much to say on Western Europe itself, but the U.S. is going to be facing a tough election cycle. This is a place that... <laughs> maybe ironically, is resembling more of Eastern Europe right now than not. I think the unconstitutional detainment of peaceful protesters and the federal deployments to Chicago are indicative of that. We may be, in fact, seeing some democratic backsliding, especially as we near the election itself. Radical right 
Watchers are, are in fact very concerned over those developments, especially as state security forces are employed against civilians. And it's a very difficult situation. If this were happening in, say, Hong Kong or Ukraine or Russia, we would be condemning it as the apparent or, or maybe not anymore global leader. But obviously Trump has uh, sickened the discourse and political life in the country. But this also gives us a great look into how populistic speech making can shift its head towards authoritarianism, authoritarianism after um, someone comes into power. So no longer is he about draining the swamp, but he's the law and order guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, absolutely. And we do see how language becomes so important in controlling the discourse, as you've said. And uh, on that note, the sort of challenges that we've seen both, I mean, we've seen this in the, in the US, but again, going back to uh, Central and Eastern Europe, do you think that misinformation and disinformation leakages have allowed such extremism, such uh, within the radical right, to flourish during the COVID-19 pandemic. So, for example, uh, the misinformation or, or disinformation techniques employed by the state, different states, widely shared through social media platforms or through different announcements. And uh, do you think that these language or these linguistic techniques have allowed radical right? Uh, extremism to flourish. Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure that COVID is allowing the extreme right or far right to flourish, but I think that it has had effects on how people are practicing these views. So, so maybe it's been most helpful for recruitment into some of these groups in online spaces, maybe. But on the national and state political level, I wouldn't say uh, it's exactly flourishing right now. Uh, to you know, to be fair to Poland earlier, who I kind of picked on with Duda, Duda actually lost votes in relation to his last election, for instance. Um, but COVID has been an excuse for an author authoritarian turn in many countries and has promoted xenophobia in the wider populace across almost all states. I know that in the UK... I know people who were spit on and yelled at for being Asian, which has happened elsewhere in Eastern Europe. And in the U U.S., of course, the, the anti-mask-wearing brigade <laughs> has come out in full force. If you watched that Sasha Baron Cohen stunt a few weeks ago, you'd, you'd see him dressed up as a country singer at a militia rally in Washington State. It, these are... Patriots with a capital P, oftentimes dangerous right-wing militia members, and sometimes they're sovereign citizen types, and they join him in, in singing his racist, nativist, anti-mask, anti-Clinton song. You should really check out the clip under Sasha Baron Cohen rally footed and, and watch it. You'll hear people literally chanting some key lines and they're all populistic and and native <laughs> hillary clinton what are we gonna do lock her up oh. like we used to do oh. yeah. or dr fauci what's we gonna do inject him with the wuhan flu oh. and, and some of these people are really screaming these lines and they get much worse and much more crass and, and uh profane but it takes them an 
a whole eight minutes before they even realize he's making fun of them, which is quite concerning given the lyrical content. Uh, <laughs> maybe some cognitive testing can be handed out. <laughs> um, but this is probably the biggest effect of, of COVID. The, the, the tendency for people in times of crisis to act on their xenophobia. They're no longer afraid of acting like that. And I think that is very worrying. And uh, I guess to some extent, usually this sort of response is uh, triggered after when governments began introducing some of these restrictions, people would react. You know, you, you would see this charade of uh, anti-masks or anti, uh, you know, the conspiracy theorists as well, believing that the state is, in, is simply trying to find an excuse to push for harsher, stricter measures in the name of law, order, and security. But to some extent, I, I would say that some governments have actually uh, found this convenient, this period convenient to push for stricter measures. So my question here is where is the balance when it comes to enforcing stricter control in order to contain this pandemic? And how do we effectively mediate this to the people? Because Again, at the end of the day, language, as I've said before, it, it plays it plays a role in uh, influencing different ideas, keeping people either in touch or uh, you know encouraging them to think outside the box and go up against this sort of given identity uh, that they might think that they have. So, do we see where is the balance? As I've, as I've asked, um, do we see uh, fit to start pushing for stricter control to contain? this uh, crisis or should we loosen up? I don't believe that governments have been overstepping in regards to lockdown measures, even, even in some of the more extreme cases, uh, and also with mask enforcement. It, um, yeah, it, it's it's a, a troublesome question. How much is too much and how little is too little? But a lot of the, the detractors of, of even asking this question will be like, well, what can the economy handle? And my reply to that is the economy can handle as many dead people as you feed it. Mm. <laughs> um, that is the worst thing you can do. What, what the United States is doing right now is the worst thing possible. I think that Western Europe has handled it fairly well. I think Italy, in fact, they, they started off rocky, but they've handled it well. I think the Germany, same thing. And... The, the EU has been doing very well with what it has, um, especially for not being a centralized structure. I mean, the, to be fair, this is coming from somebody who is... I, I was probably the most responsible man in England. Uh, I moved to the countryside <laughs> before the peak of the virus. I heard that there was a, a pandemic starting, so I moved to the countryside to live alone like a wilderness m man and do my part not to infect people. Uh, and I think to a degree, we all should have done that. I think that we should all still be doing that. So I think that governments perhaps should be more more strict, especially the U.S. The U.S. is quite frankly screwed right now. It's the least desirable place to be in the world. It has one of the weakest passports right now, and that's because of a lack of both state and national leadership. It's an insane level of incompetence that is getting people killed. And in my opinion, it's probably to the degree of criminal negligence or something at this point. But even without lockdown measures, we see a push towards authoritarian values across 
the populace and across the, the government. You don't need laws to produce these things. You, you need practices, actions, and tacit acceptance in at least some of the populace. With Trump, of course, you have crackdowns on peaceful protesters, which a lot of people support. If you go on my hometown Facebook page, this is what's happening in Belarus right now, but perhaps with less tacit support of Lukashenko. <laughs> so it might be a little bit worrying. You know, this isn't the greatest uh, feeling when the U.S. system can be compared to a literal dictatorship. In the areas that I study, though, democratic backsliding is at least tried to be a little bit hidden. <laughs> But in general, I think that maybe COVID is more of an impetus to strengthen these authoritarian, informal, and formal institutions, but only because the nexus between far-right politics and populism is probably at its weakest point in a long time. These are people who don't even accept science half the time, and this is not excusable to a general public who's afraid that their parents and grandparents will senselessly die. But... Take Hungary, for, for example, um, in terms of how these institutions can strengthen. Orban gave himself emergency powers at the start of the pandemic. This gave him the power to rule by decree. It, sure, it was ended last month, but then a new law emerged where he could do it again easier. This really hits at the state of rule of law in the country and, and potentially the EU. That's uh, indeed, and that's quite unfortunate. But at the same time, I would say that going back to what you've uh, originally began mentioning on uh, the economy, I would say that when we look at how different individual member states within the EU, they influence one another, I would say that the EU as well at the very beginning was a bit slow in its response uh, towards this crisis. And this was also acknowledged by different figures within the European Parliament, within the mm -hmm. Commission itself. And that's because the EU itself, in order to better understand it, it's, uh, it lacks a central, more organized political structure. And uh, at the same time, yes, we also see how individual countries, and I'm going to mention the example of Cyprus, they, uh, who, who had been, begun enforcing really good, really strict measures and uh, they were effective in controlling and containing the crisis uh, at home. Uh, there is growing speculation now that in the event of a second wave, these countries will not be able to enforce the same complete lockdown measures again. So they will be forced to implement partial lockdown measures as an attempt to balance between, uh, you know, saving lives and also maintaining the economy. And that's, uh, let's face it, that's going to be a huge problem in the near future. Uh, there is some speculation, as a, according to some analysts. Of, of course, this hasn't really been verified yet. But by November, we will begin seeing a lot of unemployment around Europe. Yeah. And that's definitely another issue. Yeah. So per Cyprus, I, I think that Cyprus ha had an appropriate response. It's limited the amount of people who are dying right now and has saved time. So maybe moving into a partial lockdown will be more acceptable than having U.S. levels of the amount of people infected, especially on an island. Absolutely. So uh, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be a balance, but when COVID happened, immediately we should have taken these measures because we had no idea what we were dealing with. And it, w it was irresponsible to, to not take these measures when... The, the amount of deaths that could have occurred 
and that are occurring in the U.S. are going to hurt the economy equally as much. So it, it's not really a balance in those terms for me, um, death or economy. But for me, it's really about how can you placate the people long enough for us to find a treatment, for us to find a vaccine, if that's even possible. It, it was really to, to prolong that, especially as the healthcare system could not cope in many of the countries. Definitely. And also when we're talking about the healthcare system itself, something that uh, our um, audience might be, having tr might be having trouble understanding is that we're not just talking about the people who suffer from this virus, but also if we overwhelm our healthcare systems around the world, then we won't be able to treat people for other sort of diseases, other sort of uh, emergency health oh, crises. Yeah. And, that's the, and that's the issue here. That's, the, that's why uh, these measures were so valuable and they had to be implemented. Whereas unfortunately, as you've rightly mentioned, we've seen the situation in some states in the US going out of control. We've seen um, you know, the healthcare system in, in some cases not being able to manage and, uh, and not just in the US obviously, but uh, in other countries as well. And that's why we need these initial stricter measures. And that's why, as you've said, in some countries, it would be much more acceptable to introduce at a second wave a partial lockdown, because then they have at least, uh, they do have some initial knowledge, some, they have the foundations on how to respond. And uh, it's all about a trial and error. It might sound as if it's like that at the beginning, but uh, let's remember that the world itself, no country in the world was actually prepared for this level of crisis. No matter how much we've had to deal with pandemics in the past, we still need to learn from this. And we are uh, still way far from uh, developing a comprehensive uh, medication or a, vi or a vaccine for this. And it's important that we have to acknowledge that, that we still have to be careful no matter the restrictions in our homes, uh, in our countries, uh, no matter the sort of uh, political decisions that we take, we have to be conscious, and it's something that we have to learn how to live with. Yeah. Um, okay, at this point, uh, Nick, I'd like to thank you so much for all your time. This has been some very good food for thought, and uh, I personally enjoyed this conversation, and I hope our uh, listeners would have enjoyed this as well. Yeah, th thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much, and all the best with your research. <laughs>